Thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, for the past two weeks, we've been looking at Luke chapter 17, which deals with seven things that are really important in the Christian life, seven things that we really need to apply to our lives, seven things that really matter. And so far, we've looked at the first six things that Jesus reveals to us that really matter in the Christian life. The first thing is the importance of not stumbling other believers. I'm not doing something that would hinder or trip up or cause uh, a problem in another believer's relationship with God. The second thing is to rebuke people who sin against you in love. When someone sins against you, to lovingly come to them with the goal of repentance, of the goal of restoration. The third thing is to forgive people who sin against you. Whenever someone repents, God says, we need to forgive. No matter how many times it is, if they come to you and they repent of a sin, then our response should always be forgiveness. The fourth thing is to have faith in God to enable you to do what he commands you to do. We have to have faith that God will give us what we need to do the things that he commands us to do if we trust in him. The fifth thing is to serve God out of love, understanding he owes you nothing and you owe him everything. Jesus tells us when we're obedient to God's commands, when we, when we do what he tells us to do, we should respond with, we are undeserving servants. We are unworthy of anything from you, God. We don't do these things in order for you to now owe us. We do these things out of love for you because you are our Savior. The sixth thing is to respond to God's blessings with praise and thanksgiving. Jesus healed 10 lepers, these men who had this horrible disease, and only one of the 10 came back with the right response, a response of praise, a response of thanksgiving for the wonderful work Jesus did in his life. So in the first 19 verses of chapter 17, we've seen these six things that really matter. Well, now we're going to finish chapter 17, look at all the rest of the verses, and Jesus is really going to focus on one specific thing. It's the seventh thing that we're going to look at, and that is to be prepared for the kingdom of God. Now, before we look at how Jesus tells us we need to be prepared for the kingdom of God, let's take a moment to make sure that we understand what this phrase, the kingdom of God, means. Because we can't really be prepared for something that we don't understand. And so this is something that the Bible speaks a lot about. The kingdom of God is used 210 times in the New Testament. And the person who uses that phrase the most is Jesus himself. Here are a few examples of the kingdom of God being used. Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. Now after John was put into prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the kingdom of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. John 3.3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. 
Mark 14, 25, Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And Acts 28, 23, So when they had appointed Paul a day, many came to him in his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. Both Jesus and Paul spoke of the kingdom of God very often. And there are three things connected with the kingdom of God that's important for us to note. The first thing that's connected with the kingdom of God is the gospel. The gospel is connected to the kingdom of God. The gospel being Jesus coming and dying on the cross for our sin, to take away our sin. The second, the kingdom of God is connected with heaven. God's heavenly kingdom. And third, the kingdom of God is connected with the kingly rule of Jesus when he comes and establishes his earthly kingdom. So it's connected with the gospel, what we need to accept in order to actually enter into the kingdom of God. It's connected with the heavenly kingdom, where we're going to go when we leave this earth. But also it's connected with Jesus' return to establish an earthly kingdom here on this earth. Now, something we need to understand is that the Old Testament is full of prophecies referring to the kingdom of God. I noted 210 times it's spoken of in the New Testament, but it's spoken of throughout the Old Testament prophesying, meaning this is what the kingdom of God is going to be like. This is who's going to come, the Messiah. He's going to be the king. And so it tells us things in the Old Testament of what to expect about the kingdom of God. Let me give you a few examples. In the book of Daniel, chapter 2, verse 44, it says this, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Daniel's saying, you know, there's going to come a time where God is going to establish his kingdom here on this earth. And all the kingdoms that are on the earth at that time, when God comes, he is going to destroy those kingdoms. And his kingdom is the one that is going to rule and reign forever. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, another prophecy about the kingdom of God. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Samuel is saying that God is going to send his king from heaven. We know who that is. That is the Messiah. That is Jesus. And he's going to come to establish an earthly kingdom and to destroy the adversaries of God, the adversaries of his people, the nation of Israel, and to Judge them. Psalms 47, verses 2 and 3. The Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. The psalm is speaking about God establishing a kingdom that subdues all the people under his rule, under his reign, as he rules from Israel. Now, the thing I want you to notice about these Old Testament verses, and there's many more like them, is it's prophesying about a kingdom of God that is going to be here on this earth, that God, the King, Messiah, Jesus, is going to come and rule and reign here on this earth. Now, these Old Testament passages are are important to note because the Israelites of Jesus' day were greatly anticipating their fulfillment. They were desperate for the Messiah to come and to rule and to reign. 
And it's not hard to understand why, because if you remember at the time of Jesus, the nation of Israel is an occupied land. Rome has conquered them. Rome is oppressing them. Rome is in power. They are not. They are desperate for someone to come, the Messiah, to then make them the power over Rome, to take them away from this occupier Rome, this oppressor Rome, and now the Messiah come and rule and reign. Because if you notice from those verses, when the Messiah comes, all the nations are going to be destroyed. All the nations are going to have to submit to his rule. And so Israel's anticipating that. They're waiting for that. They're, they're tired of being under the thumb of the Romans, and they're just desperate for the Messiah to come because they think when the Messiah comes, he will establish an earthly kingdom. He will rule and reign from Jerusalem, and we will no longer have to be subject to this horrible group called the Romans. Well, the Israelites, they were desperate to get away from Roman control. So when they looked at this word or this phrase, the kingdom of God, their definition of that was God sending the Messiah, the king, to come to this earth, establish his earthly kingdom to rule and reign. That's all they saw. That's when they heard that term. That's what they thought. God sending the Messiah to come and establish his earthly kingdom to rule and to reign. Well, that wasn't a wrong definition. It was just an incomplete definition. Definitely that's part of what the kingdom of God is. I read those Old Testament passages. That's definitely part of what it means. But there's more to it than that. The problem they had, they didn't have something wrong necessarily. They just had something incomplete. You see, there's a lot more Old Testament scriptures that prophesy about the kingdom of God. And they tell us things more than just the fact that there's going to be the Messiah coming to establish an earthly kingdom, to rule and reign. It says that the Messiah is also going to come to do something very different. The clearest verses that reveal that is in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. There's more than this, but this is probably the most clear. I'll read a few of those verses for you. Isaiah 53, 5-7. This is speaking about the coming Messiah. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The chapter goes on to give more and more detail about what would take place. Isaiah 53 is so clear when you read it that it is speaking of the Messiah who came to give his life for a specific purpose, to take the sins of the world upon himself and pay for those sins as he gave his life. So the Old Testament prophesies about the kingdom of God. There's something very important to note, and this is where it can be confusing, and this is why it's understandable that the Jews of Jesus' time missed it. Because the kingdom of God wasn't just one coming of the Messiah, it was two. The first coming was Jesus to come as a suffering Savior to give his life for the sins of the world. The second coming was Jesus coming as a conquering king to rule and reign and establish his earthly kingdom. The first happened when Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins. The second is still a future event that is going to happen when Jesus returns And he's going to establish his earthly kingdom, and he is going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. 
Now, an important thing to understand is that the Jews of Jesus' day, they missed the reality that there was going to be two comings. All they focused on, for good reason, because they were desperate for the king to come establish his earthly rule and reign because of their circumstances, because of Rome oppressing them. They just kept focusing on those things, and they missed the fact that, actually, the Bible also prophesied that the Messiah would come, and that he would give his life for the sins of the world. Well, they kind of ignored that, and they were just focusing on the fact that Messiah would come and establish his earthly kingdom, and that he would rule, and that he would reign. And so they missed this very important first coming of the Messiah. They only defined the kingdom of God as God sending the Messiah to conquer their enemies, but they didn't recognize it also meant to die for their enemies, to die for them, to die for the world's sin. So their definition of the kingdom of God, it wasn't wrong, it was just incomplete. They missed a very, very important part, the first coming of the Messiah, of Jesus, to come and give his life for the sins of the world. Now for people today, we kind of look at it, and when we think of the kingdom of God, the first thing that comes to our mind is Jesus on the cross. But, you know, we have the blessing of hindsight. We can look back and we have the, old, the New Testament and, and we can see what Jesus did. And so we think of the kingdom of God. We think of Jesus dying on the cross. We think of accepting him. And, and now we have the privilege of being a part of God's kingdom. And so we kind of have the opposite problem. We don't miss that part of the coming. We know Jesus came. We know that he gave his life. We know that he did that. What we have a problem with oftentimes in the world today is we miss the reality that there's going to be another coming. He's not coming anymore to be the Savior to die. He's coming now to be the King to conquer, to rule, to judge the sin of the world. And oftentimes people today, that's the one that they're missing. In Jesus' day, they were missing the fact that he came to die for the sins of the world, and they were waiting for the conquering king. In our day, we're not missing the fact that he came to die for the sins of the world. But unfortunately, in the church world, there are many who are missing the fact that he's coming again. He's coming again, and he's not going to come as the suffering servant to give his life. He's going to come as the conquering king. And when you read Revelation, you see he's going to come in a very fierce and strong and powerful way. And I think many people don't recognize and are not ready for that. The conquering king is coming. He's coming to set up his kingdom. And the question is, are we prepared for it? And that is ultimately what Jesus is going to deal with these verses here this morning is, are you prepared for the kingdom of God. Are you prepared for the coming king? In our verses, he's going to give us some practical ways that we can prepare ourselves for the kingdom of God. So the Jews of Jesus' day, that they're desperately waiting for the Messiah for the purpose of let him come and establish his earthly kingdom and conquer the Roman oppressors. Now, I want you to picture this for a moment. That's the mindset of the religious leaders. That's the mindset of the Jews. Even the disciples of Jesus' day, they completely missed that Jesus came to suffer and die, and they were waiting for him to establish his earthly kingdom through his whole ministry. But now Jesus has made very clear up to this point in time in Luke, he's the Messiah. He's made that clear. The religious leaders know that he has made that claim. And so now they're coming to him with a question. If you are the Messiah... And our mindset is the Messiah is going to establish his earthly rule. He's going to establish the kingdom of God here on earth. They now come and they pose a question to Jesus. And let's see what they say to Jesus and how Jesus responds. Starting in chapter 17, verse 20, says this. 
Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. We're told the Pharisees asked Jesus, when's the kingdom of God going to come? Now, it's interesting here that the Greek word translated asked is not a very good translation. The actual word means to demand something, to interrogate. The King James Version says this, when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. That's a much more accurate translation because they're not coming and just asking a question. They're demanding, hey, you're the Messiah or claiming you're the Messiah, and they're demanding, okay, if it's true, you need to put up or shut up. You need to go and establish your kingdom or quit claiming that you're the Messiah. That's what they're kind of saying. Since the Messiah in their mind is the one who's going to establish the earthly kingdom, if that's you, then go ahead. Conquer Rome. Establish your earthly kingdom. When's it going to happen, Messiah, if that's really what you are? That's how they're demanding him to respond to this because they're thinking, you're the Messiah, that's what you're saying? Well, then prove it. Show it by establishing the earthly kingdom that we're all waiting for. Well, Jesus has a response for this demand, for this interrogation. He says, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Here Jesus reveals something about the kingdom of God that the Pharisees, that the Jews of Jesus' day totally missed. The kingdom of God that Jesus was establishing right then at his first coming was not going to be a kingdom where people could look and say, hey, it's over there. There's the king on his throne, in his palace, with his armies. Jesus is saying, no, no, it's not something that you can see. In my first coming, I'm not establishing that kind of kingdom. I'm not establishing the earthly rule. I'm not going to have a throne. I'm not going to have a palace. I'm not going to have an army. You're not going to be able to point to it and say, there it is. And then Jesus goes on to say something very important. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Now, within you, once again, it is not a good translation. The Greek word means in your midst or near you. For those of you with the New American Standard Bible, it's translated more accurate. It says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Notice Jesus, who he's speaking to. He's speaking to the Pharisees. He's not saying the kingdom of God is in you, Pharisees. The Pharisees didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't accept the king, and they have no part of the kingdom of God. So he's not saying it's in you. He's saying it's near you. It's in your midst. Well, why is the kingdom of God near them, in their midst? Because the king is near them, speaking to them. Hey, it is right here. The kingdom of God is near you. It's in your midst because the king is right here with you. I am the king. I'm here with you in your midst. The problem the Pharisees had was they wanted the kingdom of God, but they were rejecting its king. But you can't be part of the kingdom of God if you don't accept God's king. The first step in preparing for the kingdom of God, the most important step, is by accepting and believing in King Jesus. The only way that you are going to be able to enter into the kingdom of God is to accept the king. If you reject the king, there's no part for you in God's kingdom. He's made that very clear. There's only one way into his kingdom, only one way into his presence, only one way to be accepted. Jesus said it with his own words in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one, No one comes to the Father except through me. 
There's only one way to get into the kingdom of God, and that is through accepting the king, accepting that he came and died for your sin, accepting that you need him, you need to come to him, you need his forgiveness if you want to be allowed into God's kingdom. The Pharisees would not accept Jesus as king, and because of that, they were not a part of the kingdom of God. So the first important thing in Jesus' first coming He died for the sins of the world to enable us to be part of God's kingdom. And and once we accept that, once we accept that Jesus is king, we're allowed into the kingdom of God. It's a wonderful blessing, but it doesn't end there. Now, there's still things that we need to do to prepare ourselves for the second coming. You see, in the first coming, Jesus came to die to open up the way for us to be a part of the kingdom of God. But now that we've accepted that and we are part of the kingdom of God, are we ready for his return? Are we ready for the king to come back? And that is what Jesus is now going to do. He's going to shift the focus from answering this demand of the Pharisees, and he's going to now speak to his followers, his disciples, and he's going to say, here are some ways you need to prepare yourself for my second coming when I actually will establish my earthly kingdom and I will rule and reign. Verse 22 through 25, let's see what Jesus has to say. And he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Don't go after them or follow them. For as lightning that flashes out of one part of under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, something that Jesus does throughout the Gospels when he's speaking about the kingdom of God, he mixes together first and second comings. And so you have to be careful to make sure you understand within each verse, all right, what is he referring to? So as Jesus starts, he's speaking about his second coming. He's speaking about the time when he returns to establish his earthly kingdom. He says, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, his return, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there, but do not go after them or follow them. You see, Jesus knew that he was going to leave this earth. He was going to ascend back to heaven and that there was going to be a time in which those who believed in him were going to anticipate and wait for his return. And sadly, during that time, the time that we are living in now, there are going to be those and have been and still will be those who claim to be the Messiah who claim to be Jesus Christ. Jesus says, you know, you need to make sure you're not deceived by them. Make sure you don't follow them. They say, oh, look, there they are over there. Oh, look, here he is over here. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus goes into more detail about this. He says, then if anyone says to you here, look, here's the Christ or there, Do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So I have told you beforehand, therefore, if they say to you, look, here he is in the desert, do not go out, or look, here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. So Jesus makes very clear, there's people who are going to come that are going to claim to be Christ, claim to be the Messiah. And notice what he also says, some of them are going to have supernatural power. 
to do signs and wonders. Why? To deceive people into believing that they truly are the Messiah. And notice one of the groups he says that they want to try to deceive. If possible, even the elect. Speaking of Christians, believers in Jesus, they want to deceive even us. And so he's given a warning. Hey, before I come back, there are going to be those who claim to be me having come back. And don't be deceived by it. Oh, don't go out to the desert. Don't go to the inner rooms. Don't buy in to these claims that people are making. You know, David Koresh, you might have heard him claim to be Jesus. Jim Jones, Sun Moon, had a huge following in China. Hundreds of people have claimed to be the Messiah or claimed to be Jesus, and they were not. But sadly, the thing that is so sad is that there have been thousands upon thousands who have believed that, who have been deceived by that, and who have followed these individuals who have made these false claims. So Jesus warns us, hey, when you hear about these supposed messiahs, don't go and follow them, because when I come, you're going to know it. Well, how are we going to know well, why shouldn't we go to the desert and investigate? Or why shouldn't we go to the inner room? Because Jesus says, oh, no, no, when I come, it's going to be obvious. And notice the example he gives. For as lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. Jesus uses the flash of lightning as an example to say, you know what, when I come, that's what it's going to be like. Now, for those of us who live here in Texas, we've seen plenty of lightning storms. And when you see lightning in the sky, it's pretty hard to miss, isn't it? It just lights up the whole sky. And Jesus is saying, it's going to be like that. It's not going to be some obscure hidden thinking, oh, I hear some people talking out in the desert and maybe that's Jesus. No, it's not. Because when he comes, everyone's going to know it's going to be obvious. Now, if you read the book of Revelation chapter 19, we're given some details about the second coming of Jesus and how he's going to come. And I'll read some of those verses for you. And if you don't think this will be obvious, then... I don't know if you know what obvious is, but um, let's see this. Now, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him, speaking of Jesus, was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with the robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. You know, when we think of Jesus, we think of this, you know, tame, suffering servant who allowed people to crucify him on a cross to pay for our sins. But you know what? That is not what he's like now. He's ruling and reigning on the throne in heaven. You look in Revelation in the first three chapters and it gives a description of what he's like and it's a very fierce description and this one's even more fierce of what he's going to do when he comes back to the armies of the world who are trying to defeat Israel and who are standing against him and it says this great description of he's coming down from heaven on white horses with an army of people with white horses to ultimately wipe out the armies that are there seeking to fight him and you look more in the valley of Armageddon but this is going to be something something like he says, it's like a flash of lightning coming from the sky. You're not going to miss it. When Jesus comes, everyone's going to know he's coming. And for those who are against him, they're going to learn the hard way that they shouldn't have declared war against him. So Jesus starts talking about his second coming, saying, you know what? Don't be deceived. 
Don't be thinking that this guy's the Messiah or that guy's the Messiah. Trust me, you'll know when I come and don't buy in to all that stuff. But now he shifts gears and says something to them that they're probably excited. All right, Jesus, we've been waiting for that. When's this going to happen? Where's my horse? But now he tells them in verse 25, but he first must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Here Jesus reveals the purpose of his first coming. Guys, first, I got to suffer. I know you're waiting for me to establish my kingdom. I know you're waiting for me to rule and reign. I know you're waiting for this, but first, I have to suffer and die for the sin of the world. Jesus is making it clear he did not come the first time to be crowned. He came the first time to be crucified. He did not come the first time to destroy Israel's enemies. He came to die for not only Israel's enemies, but all the enemies of God. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that before he was going to establish his earthly kingdom, he was going to give his life for the sins of the world. Now, as you read through the Gospels, you realize they didn't get it. They didn't even get it when Jesus died on the cross. They just were totally clueless of this reality, even though he made it clear to them over and over again. Guys, I didn't come to establish my earthly kingdom yet. I came to die. But they just kind of ignored that. No, 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 no. You're going to establish your earthly kingdom. We're going to be your right-hand men. It's going to be so great. We can't wait. Jesus is saying, all right, guys, you're going to figure it out pretty soon when this all comes together. Well, now Jesus is going to tell us what things are going to be like at his second coming. What the world's going to be like when he's just about to return again so that we can be prepared. Notice the illustrations that Jesus gives for this. My slides are behind. Here we go. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus gives us two illustrations. And these are literal events that took place in the Old Testament. He's saying, you guys want to know what it's going to be like when I'm coming back? You know what the world's going to be like right before my second coming? I'll tell you, it's going to be like the days of Noah and like the days of Lot. Now let me remind you of what it was like in the days of Noah. If you forget, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, something was happening in the world there that is kind of similar to what we see today in in our world. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was was only evil continually. This is how bad it got before God does something to the world at that time. We're told that only Noah and his family were the righteous people on the earth. Of all the millions, possibly even billions of people at that time, only one family. That's how wicked the world got. So God tells Noah he wants him to build an ark because he's coming to destroy the earth with a flood. But you know what? People lived a lot longer back then. It took Noah and his sons a long time to build this humongous ark which it was huge, unlike those little books, children's books you read where it has like, you know, a giraffe head coming out and it looks like the ark's like five feet wide. This thing was a monstrous, huge thing. It took them 120 years to complete it. But this is what I want you to understand. 
We're told in Hebrews, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. For that 120-year span of time, as people are looking, what is it you're building? And it's getting bigger and bigger. I'll tell you, God's going to send a flood. He's going to judge the sin of this world. You need to repent. You need to get right with God. You need to join us in the ark. For 120 years, Noah preaches God's judgment is coming. And for 120 years, the world at that time rejects the preaching of Noah. They reject the message that God is going to judge the sin of the world. So that's the first example that Jesus gives. It's like the time of Noah. It's just business as usual. They're eating. They're drinking. And for the first time, the Bible says, because before this it had never rained, all of a sudden, Drips of water start coming down, and probably huge amounts of water start coming down, and they're not expecting it. The ark door is closed, and God floods the world, and they all die. The second illustration that Jesus uses to describe what it will be like when he comes back is of Lot. Now, if you remember Lot, he goes to a certain city that's probably one that you will remember. It's called Sodom and Gomorrah, one of the most wicked cities there were back in that time. And it was so wicked that God says, you know what, I'm going to destroy it. But before I destroy it, I want to get the righteous people out. And just like with Noah and his family, sadly, the only righteous people living in Sodom and Gomorrah were Lot and his family. And so God says, I'm going to send angels and we're going to remove you before I come and destroy this city. So Sodom and Gomorrah were just going about as business as usual, eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building, Until the day judgment came and fire and brimstone came and wiped that city out and those that are in it. It's quite interesting from an archaeological standpoint. They have found Sodom and Gomorrah. They have found this place. And what's it covered in? Fire and brimstone. Just like the Bible says. There are two important things I want us to note about these illustrations. First of all, these sinful people were not willing to accept there was a coming judgment of God. They were not willing to accept that their sinful lifestyle was ultimately bringing God's judgment upon them. Probably just like today, most of them didn't even believe there was a God. There was someone they were going to have to answer to. There was a judge that they were going to have to stand before one day. They were not prepared for God's imminent judgment. They were just going about with business as usual, thinking God's judgment's never going to come. Today is going to be just like it was yesterday, and they were sorely mistaken, and his judgment came upon them all of a sudden. Jesus says, even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. This is what the world's going to be like as Jesus comes for the second time. That's exactly the kind of world we live in today. A world that thinks it can do whatever it wants without any punishment, without any judgment, without any God that there is. So many people just ignore him, don't believe in him, don't accept that they're going to answer to him, don't believe that they're going to stand before him one day. A world that's just living their sinful life with no care or concern of God judging their sin. And a world that is not heeding the warning that they need to repent and get right with God. That's the kind of world we live in. And Jesus is saying, it's that kind of world that I'm going to return to. And they're going to be, sadly, have a big wake-up call when it's not the suffering servant who came to die, but the conquering king who's come to judge In both Noah's time and Lot's time, God poured out his wrath and judgment on a sinful world. The Bible tells us right before Jesus returns that God is going to pour out his wrath upon a very sinful world. And it's referred to as a time of the great tribulation. 
Now, we have lots of tribulation, lots of things going on in the world, but this time is much more significant and much worse. Jesus speaks about it in Matthew's Gospel, chapter uh, 24, says this in verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Jesus is saying there's coming a time that is so horrible, there's nothing. And think of all the things that have happened from the beginning of time to now, even the flood. He says, you know what? This is going to be worse than anything ever before now. And nothing after this will ever be this bad again. This is going to be the most significant outpouring of God's wrath upon people. Well, the rest of Matthew 24 goes into more detail about this. If you want to get real detailed about it, go to Revelation. Read chapters 6 through 19, and you're going to see in remarkable detail exactly what's going to happen, what God's going to do, how he's going to pour his wrath out upon mankind. In the book of Daniel, we're told that this is going to take a seven-year period of time to fully happen. Seven years of God's wrath. Right when that seven years of great tribulation is over, we're told that then Jesus will return for the second time. And he will come and he will judge the nations. He will rule and reign. And I believe that we are very close to this time and that the world around us is definitely very clueless of the coming judgment that is they're going to receive from God if they don't get right with Christ. So the first important thing to see about the illustration of Noah and Lot is that we're living in that type of day. The second thing that we need to understand about this illustration, if you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is scaring me, you know, look at all these things that are going to happen. The righteous people who believed in God like Noah, like Lot, notice that they were delivered, they were protected from God's judgment. And this is something for us as believers to be encouraged by when we think of the future and what is coming. Before God poured out his wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah, he delivered Lot and his family, removing them from that city. And before God pours his wrath and judgment upon this earth with the worldwide flood, he delivered and protected Noah and his family in the ark. An important thing for us to know is that God will deliver and protect those who believe in him when he comes to pour his wrath and judgment in the great tribulation. The Bible reveals that before the tribulation comes, God's going to do something for his church. For those who believe in him, we refer to it as the rapture. This is one of the verses that speaks about this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ, those who believed in Christ but have already been dead, will rise first. Then we who are still alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. This term rapture means to be caught up. And that's what this passage is speaking about. That there's going to be a time where Jesus comes. He's just going to come to the clouds. Those who have died, who have already believed in him, they are going to be the first ones. It's going to be in a blink of an eye, so it's all pretty much instantaneous. And, but the crazy thing is there are going to be people who are still alive. So if Jesus came to rapture his church today, we would go to be with him, and we would not die. There are going to be a generation of people that believe in Jesus that are not going to have to suffer death like all the generations before. He's speaking about he's going to come for his church, and he's going to rapture us up, and we're going to be with him in the clouds. 
I think another important thing to understand is that God doesn't pour out his wrath on believers in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The wrath of God is not intended for people who believe in Jesus. It is for people who have rejected Jesus. One of the wonderful blessings of the gospel and one of the things that Jesus did on the cross, he didn't just take our sin upon him. He took the judgment of our sin and the judgment of our sin was God's wrath being poured out on Jesus so it wouldn't have to be poured out on us. And when we accept Jesus Christ, we are now protected eternally from the wrath of God. Not only when we get into heaven because we think, oh, we're protected from hell. No, we're protected from God's wrath, period, now, because we have accepted Jesus Christ. And now we are protected in God's children. And so when God pours his wrath upon this world, he is first going to come and remove us, his children, his church, those who believe in him, because he will not pour his wrath upon us. Because Jesus dealt with that, and we are not subject now to the wrath of God, which is a wonderful encouragement to us. You know what? If you read the book of Revelation, you'll find in chapters 6 through 19, the time where it speaks about the great tribulation, the word church is not there at all. Which is very interesting because in Revelations chapter 1 through 3, there's these letters to the seven churches. It's all about the church of this, the church of that, the church of this. Do this, do this, do this. It's all about the church. And then, boom, comes no more church. The wrath of God is being poured out. And then all of a sudden, Revelation 22, the church is in existence again. And so that whole time when the wrath of God is there, it's significant that all through the book of Revelation, you don't see the word church anymore. Why? Because we're not going to be there. He's going to come and remove us out of that because he will not pour his wrath on those who have accepted Jesus Christ. But you know what? The events described in chapters 6 through 19, it says over and over, the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus, the Lamb of God. The wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of the Lamb. That whole thing is God's wrath being poured out on a wicked and sinful world. You see, just like God protected and delivered Lot and his family by removing them from the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, He will protect us by removing us before he comes and pours his wrath on the sinful world in the great tribulation. So Jesus uses these illustrations of Noah, this illustration of Lot, to say, this is what the world's going to be like when I come. It's going to be a world that's just living like everything's great. I'm just going to live my sinful life, not recognizing that the judgment of God is coming soon. Well, Now that Jesus has set up the stage of this is what it'll be like when I come, he's going to give us a few practical things of how can you be prepared while still living in that time right before I return. Notice what he tells us in verses 31 through 33. In that day, he who is on the housetops and his goods are in the house, let him come down or let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Once again, Jesus gives us an illustration. The first illustration was of real events, Noah, Lot. Now he's just giving us a practical illustration of, on that day when I come, if you're outside your home, on the rooftop, in the field, don't go back to get your stuff. 
Well, what is it that Jesus is referring to when he says that? Well, the next two verses, I think, clarify what he's trying to communicate to us. The first thing he says, notice, is remember Lot's wife. He just used Lot as an example, but if you read through Genesis, maybe you're not familiar with what Lot's wife does. Remember, God comes to not just remove Lot, but his wife and his daughters from this wicked, evil city of Sodom and Gomorrah. But we're told back in Genesis that as they are leaving, the angel said, do not look back. Just get out of here. We're about to destroy this city. But we're told that Lot's wife looked back. And you think, well, 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 whoopee-doo, she looked back. Well, something that's significant is the Hebrew word that's used there means to look with a desire and a longing for something. What this is saying is that Lot's wife looked back longing for Sodom and Gomorrah, longing to go back to that sinful city, longing to go back to those things and not wanting to be delivered from them. And so Jesus says, you know, when I come and you're outside your home, don't go back for your stuff. Don't be like Lot's wife who looked back longing for that stuff of the world when I'm here coming to deliver you from it. You see, one of our problems is that we often look back with longing for the things of the world instead of looking forward to Jesus. You see that with the nation of Israel. They get delivered from Egypt. They've been crying for 400 years, God deliver us from bondage and slavery. And finally God does and he takes them out. And what did they do? Egypt was so great. Oh, we got better food there. Oh, I want to go back to Egypt. They kept looking back longing instead of looking forward to the promised land of where God was going to take them. And so often we are like that as well. And so the warning of Jesus is, don't look back with longing for the world and the stuff of the world and the sin of the world and the things of the world. Look forward and keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, not the things of this world. And he makes a point even more clear in verse 33. He says, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. Jesus says something very similar in Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, verse 26. For what profit... Is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What profit is it going to be to you if you gain everything this world has to offer and lose salvation, lose Jesus Christ, lose what is so much more precious and wonderful? Jesus is saying, what are you living for? Are you living for the things of the world or are you living for him? You know, if you really want to live, then lose your life in Christ. You want to discover what living is really about. Live for him. You talk with anyone who has achieved, maybe it's a status of a sports hero who's done everything, or a rock star, or a billionaire, or whatever. You talk and you hear them share their uh, reports of their life, and they're still empty. They thought, oh, doing this is what really would satisfy. Doing this is what really what life is all about. And they think, man, I've achieved what I thought would satisfy, what would bring this peace, what would bring all these things, and I'm still empty. The only thing that truly satisfies, the only life that's really worth living is the life that lives for Jesus. Jesus wants us living this life for him not the things of this world. He doesn't want us so concerned about worldly stuff and living for it that when he returns, we're like Lot's wife saying, oh, but I want to stay with this stuff. Another thing that you and I need to do to prepare us for the kingdom of God is by living for Jesus, not the things of this world. The best way to be prepared for when Jesus comes for you is to be living for him, not for the things of this world. 
It's not saying, you know what, the best thing to do is to find every sign, every political thing that's happening, every type of stuff. I know people who think that's the way to be prepared for Jesus' return. Well, you know, it's not bad to know the signs of the times, but at the end of the day, what he's actually saying is, you want to be prepared for me? Live for me. And in my experience, a lot of those people who get so into, oh, look what's happening in Israel here, and look at this war over here, and look at this famine here, and, and look at this you know, tsunami there, and oh, all these signs. Well, that's great, but how are you living for Jesus? Well, don't worry about that. I know all these signs and you don't. The bottom line is, when he comes back, he's not going to say, did you follow that sign over there or this sign here? He's going to say, were you living for me? Because that's what this world needs. They need people living for Jesus so that they can see the love that he has and be impacted and be changed for him. Don't cling to the things of this world. Instead, cling to Jesus. You know, I read something quite interesting It's about how North African guys trap monkeys. They take these gourds, they fill them with nuts, which I guess monkeys love to eat, and then they firmly fasten these gourds to a tree or something where uh, the monkey can't pull them away. And the interesting thing, and this is the key to all of it, the hole in the gourd is big enough just for the monkey when he takes his hand just to kind of shove it in there, but there's nuts in there. And so when he gets his hand in there, that's what he wants. He grabs those nuts. He has a fistful of nuts, but the hole's not big enough for him to pull his hand back out unless he lets go of the nuts to do it. But the thing is, the monkey wants these nuts so bad, he won't let go. Even though he can't get loose, even though he's stuck, and he'll be stuck sometimes for days, he won't let go, and these trappers will just come, and they'll find these monkeys there. All they have to do is let go, pull their hand out. They'd be gone and free, but they won't let go. They'll just hold on to it, and they come, and they trap them, and they get them. So sad, though. I mean, his freedom's so easy. Just let go of that stuff. But I I bring that up because I think so often as Christians, we have the the stuff of the world that oftentimes we grab a hold of and we don't want to let go and we love them and we don't want to release it. And God's just saying, no, it's not good for you. Get rid of it. Live for me. Don't live for that. Don't hold on to that. Hold on to me. Oh, no, I don't want to. It's holding you in bondage. If you'll just release it, you could be free. We don't realize how foolish it is. I'm holding on. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. There's something so much better for you. Living for me is so much better for you. Get rid of that. Release those things. Don't be foolish. Jesus wants us to hold on to him, not the things of this world. Well, Jesus finishes with an interesting illustration of what the rapture will be like when he comes for his church, verses 34 through 37. I tell you, in that night, there'll be two men in one bed. The one will be taken, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken, the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken, the other left. And they answered and said to him, When, Lord, or where, Lord? So he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. So once again, Jesus is referencing an illustration of the rapture where he's like, Okay, at that time, right before the second coming, he's going to come for his church. He's saying, You know, there's going to be two guys going to be sleeping. One's gone, one's still there. Two women working out in the field, one's gone, one's still there. He's bringing up this reality of what the rapture will be like. There's going to be those who are believers in Jesus who are literally just going to be gone. And then those who are left behind. And you might have seen the movie Left Behind, but I mean, the concept of that is pretty crazy when you think of what's the world going to think when all these people just vanish in a moment. And Jesus is bringing up this reality. This is what it's going to be like, and I'm sure it's going to bring some chaos to the world once that takes place. But it ends with something that's really uh, interesting. The, the disciples um, ask a question to Jesus, uh, and he responds, wherever the body is, there, well, they say, where, Lord, where is this going to be? And he says, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered 
together. Now, this is uh, interesting. William Barclay says this was a common proverb, meaning that a thing would happen when the necessary conditions were fulfilled. So Jesus is basically saying, when they're saying, well, where, when, when is this going to be? Well, it's going to happen when the necessary conditions are fulfilled, which for them, we're hoping probably in the next year, real soon, you know, they were all going to die. It's been, you know, a couple thousand years. But now I truly believe that we are in a time where the necessary conditions are fulfilled for Jesus to come back for his church, for the tribulation period to start. The Bible has specific prophecies that had to be fulfilled before any of this could happen, and those prophecies have been fulfilled. The Bible teaches of political, economic, spiritual, social, even military characteristics of the world that have to be in a certain way before this would take place, and we have all of that in our world today. And so I think it's fair to say that the conditions exist today, the stage is set, that Jesus could come for us at any time. The question is, are we prepared? So the seventh thing that really matters, well, came off, homie, I'll just tell you. Be prepared for the kingdom of God by accepting the king, living for the king, and telling others about the king. Be prepared for the kingdom of God by accepting the king, living for the king, and telling others about the king. I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we prepared for the kingdom of God? And there's two significant ways. The first most important, have you accepted Christ? Are you even a part of God's kingdom? Because until you accept the king, you have no part of his kingdom. But for those of us who have accepted Jesus, are we really living for him? If he were to come back today, would you be excited to see, for him to see the way you're living, or would you be ashamed of it? Would he come and see you really living a lot for this world, and, and you, oh Lord, can you wait a little while so I can kind of get right, and then come back, and, and then my life will look a little better? Realize, you know what, if I knew and you knew, if I could say, you know what, in three days from now, Jesus is coming. I want you to think about how different those three days might be for you. And if there's nothing that you would do different, wonderful. But if you think, oh my goodness, if I knew Jesus was coming in three days, I would live for him so much more than I do now. I'd be sharing with people. I'd be doing this. My life would change. My attitude would change. These sins that I've been indulging in, I would stop. I mean, if that's where you're at, then... You're not prepared. And there are things that need to change. So I just want to take some time this morning. As we do often, I like to end with a time of response. I think all of us, if we're honest with ourselves and examine our life, we realize I'm not fully prepared in the way I would like to be. There are things that I'm struggling with. There are areas that I don't have under control like I'd like. And if Jesus returned for me today, yeah, there'd be a sense in which I'd be saddened that that was going on in my life. And so I want us to take some time. If you'd like to pray aloud, we'd like to agree with you. Just just ask the Lord to help us be prepared, to help us live for him, to help us give up the worldly temptations and desires and the things that so often ensnare us. And to say, you know what, we don't know how much time we have left, but it could be very short, and we want to make the most of it. As the Bible says, we want to redeem the time. Why? Because the days are evil, and there are so many people who are lost. And so let's just take a moment. If you'd like to pray, if you'd like to ask the Lord to help prepare you for that, I encourage you to do that, and then uh, I'll close this in prayer.
Lord, we just ask that you would prepare each one of us. You know where we're at. You know the things that we struggle with. You know the sins that we hold on to. We know the areas of our life that need growth. You know the areas where we're not prepared. And I just pray that you would just come and minister to us individually, specifically, Lord. Reveal to us the things that we need to give up to you. Reveal to us the areas in which we need to change. Most importantly, Lord, we just pray that you would supernaturally, through your spirit, give us the power to do that, Lord, recognizing that you do have the ability to help us overcome these temptations, overcome the desire for the things of the world, overcome uh, all the things that kind of get in our way, Lord, that you can give us that boldness to share with people who are lost. Lord, if you come today, there will be so many who will be left behind, Lord, and we don't want that. We have too many people that we love that we want to be with us. We don't want them to incur your wrath. So help us, Lord. Help us to live life day by day in a way that would bring glory to you, in a way that we truly think today might be the day that you come, and I want to come. I want to live in a way that I'm not ashamed of when you come. So help us, God. Challenge us. Work in us. We want to be more like you. We need your help. So we pray that you would just do a great work in us. And that this week, Lord, we would see a change. We would put these things into practice. So be with us. Encourage us. Change us. Challenge us. Help us, Lord, in, in whatever way is needed for each one of us individually and for all of us corporately. We're grateful for this morning. We're grateful for a time just to set aside ultimately for you to do a work in us. And so we just pray that you would do that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, as usual, we love to fellowship together over a meal, get to know each other more. So if you're able to come out for that, then you're obviously always more than welcome. And if you're able to stay a little bit and help us remove all this stuff, that's always helpful too. So, uh, you're dismissed.